0: Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus 19, as we resume our study of the book of Exodus, or actually of the great acts of God from Egypt to Canaan. Exodus 19, we'll look at the first eight verses uh, today. For many years I have maintained that the most difficult question of our faith is trying to distinguish uh, clearly and define clearly the place of the Old Testament law in the life of the New Testament Christian. Certainly many people disagree with me, believing that they have that issue neatly resolved, and I'm well aware that there are several uh, systems by which that is neatly resolved. Uh, I just admit to some continuing struggle in that area but I take take encouragement in the fact that I'm not the only one. In 1749, the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote, There is perhaps no part of divinity attended with so much intricacy, and wherein orthodox divines do so much differ as stating the precise agreement and differences between the two dispensations of Moses and Christ. Folks, this is a difficult problem. Whatever your perspective, I call you to great humility and patience as you try to understand what the Bible says about our use of the law. I bring all this up this morning because we're going to have to deal with it. For years I have avoided the subject, trying to carefully not get in positions where I had to have it all worked out yet and talk about it in broad sweeping strokes. But now suddenly, uh, in our study of Exodus, we come to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, which presupposes we're going to understand what to do with it. And it's not just a little section that we could slide by unnoticed. I've been known to do that, you know, with things I don't quite understand, just kind of get on by them. But Israel spent almost a year camped at Mount Sinai. Indeed, the rest of the book of Exodus, 22 more chapters, are the account of what happened in Mount Sinai. Not only that, but the whole of the book of Leviticus and the first 10 chapters of Numbers, no less than 59 chapters of the Bible, describe what happened in front of Mount Sinai. Even I cannot figure a way to slip by unnoticed. So this morning we plunge in, still learning as we go, digging Trying to understand more clearly, but at least we start. Well, we put our toes in the water, at least, this morning. Let me read these first eight verses, and these are not the problem verses. The problem verses come the further we go, but let's look at this and get started. Exodus 19. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai, after they had set out from Rephidim, They entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me fully, and keep my covenant... Then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. I think this passage has uh, three things to teach us this morning. And uh, the first is this, that pilgrimage comes first, then paradise. Pilgrimage comes first, then paradise. Since we've been away from Exodus for a few weeks, let me just review for a moment. God sent Moses down to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel who were slaves there with the promise that he would give them a land of his own, a land of their own, a land flowing with milk and honey. Through a series of plagues which God brought upon the Egyptians and by miraculously dividing the Red Sea so that his people could walk through on dry ground, God defeated the Egyptians and delivered his people out of the slavery of Egypt. Then God began to lead them through the wilderness which lay between Egypt and the land of Canaan that had promised them, providing them along uh, for them along the way, until in our text this morning they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai. The problem is Mount Sinai is not the promised land. In fact, Mount Sinai is another very desolate place out in the middle of the wilderness. In fact, this is as far from the land of promise as they were when they left Egypt. They've not advanced one foot closer. What's God doing to them? Well, that's the first lesson we just need to learn as we address where they stand. God calls us to pilgrimage first, then to paradise. You see, this arrival at Mount Sinai is no accident. They are not lost. God and Moses have intentionally brought them to this place. Sinai is the first major goal of of Israel's journey. By bringing them here, God is keeping his promise that he made back to Moses in chapter 3, when Moses met the Lord in the burning bush, that was right here in front of Mount Sinai. And there the Lord said to Moses, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me at this mountain. And here they are, a mighty horde of people gathered in this barren place to hear the word of of God. And why did God bring them here? Why didn't he just take them to the land of promise? Because God was not just concerned to redeem them so they could live in freedom and peace in the promised land. He was concerned to make them into a community of worshiping obedient disciples. So he brought them through the wilderness to this deserted mountain and here he will speak to them and here he will elicit from them unconditional commitment to faithfulness and here he will test them to show them their weakness and from here he will lead them through even more wilderness trials until finally he takes them to the promised land. For God called them first to a pilgrimage of faith, and then to the land of promise. And folks, God hasn't changed the way he deals with his people. Through Christ he delivers us from sin's bondage with the promise of eternal life. He teaches us his word, and he tests us by allowing us to endure hardship, and he provides for us, teaching us to depend upon him, and he leads us through long and very difficult years. before. Finally, he brings us to glory with him in heaven. God's discipleship principle remains unchanged. Pilgrimage first, then paradise. Sometimes we have difficulty with that, don't we? We're tempted to question God's motives and question God's wisdom. Does he really know what he's doing? Did he abandon us? Why has he got us here? Like Israel, we sometimes are tempted to think, you know, we were better off back in Egypt. But folks, God brought His people out in the desert to meet Him, to hear from Him, and that's still how God deals with He speaks spiel, deals with us. He speaks to us in the wilderness of our life. He has not abandoned us. He just surprises us in the way that He works. One of my very favorite lines in a Rich Mullen song makes this point. He says, You'll meet the Lord in the furnace long time before you meet him in the air. You'll meet the Lord in the wilderness long time before you ever set foot in the promised land. It's pilgrimage first, then paradise. Well, so what did God want to teach him? At this mountain well that brings us to the second major point here the first great lesson actually of our text grace demands obedience grace demands obedience and you know, we live in a strange time in the history of the church we who believe the gospel who believe that God saves undeserving sinners who simply trust Jesus We who prize God's grace have sometimes worked ourselves into an absurd kind of thinking. We've begun to think that any talk then about obeying the Lord, since it's all of grace, any talk about obeying the Lord must be some kind of legalism. No, obedience is not legalism. And often those who insist on obedience to Christ get tagged as people teaching salvation by works. No, God's grace always demands a response of obedience. And we see that here in this passage. First of all, the Lord goes to great lengths as he speaks to his people to begin by uh, reiterating his great grace to them. In verse 4, he mentions three things he's done. Let me read it again. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, number one, and how I carried you an eagle's wings, number two, and brought you to myself, number three. God's great grace. He delivered them from Egypt. He defeated their enemies. Did you ever think about it? The Israelites did not decide they wanted to be free and begin to uh, uh, raise an insurgency and and uh, build up a rebellion and uh, begin to work against their leaders and oppose the government that oppressed them. And over years and years, as freedom fighters suddenly brought down Egypt, that's not what happened. God defeated Egypt while they stood and watched. God's been gracious to the children of Israel, defeating their enemies. Then he goes on to say he carried them out of Egypt through the desert enough he provided a manna from heaven and water from the rock god says he carried them like an eagle carrying its young on its wings that's language you hear again in deuteronomy 32 when the lord talks about delivering his son there we read in a desert land he found him in a barren and howling waste he shielded him and cared for him he guarded him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young that spreads its wings to catch them and Carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him; no foreign god was with him. Terence Fretheim uh, explains in a bit more detail this beautiful image. He says this is a wonderfully gracious image, as God, as a mother eagle, who cares for her young during the time when they're especially vulnerable. They can find refuge from the threats of life under the shadow of her wing. In addition, it's an image of growth, a a, a time of testing, as the mother eagle seeks to help her young eaglets learn to fly for themselves. So she pushes them out of the nest so that they can try their wings. And when they flounder, she swoops down under them and bears them up on her own strong wings to take them back to the nest. That's how God dealt with his people Israel. He was gracious. He carried them as on an eagle's wing. And then the third thing it says is he brought them to himself. What grace God had extended to Israel as they stood before this mountain. Think of how he has prepared for this day for years. How he preserved Moses, causing him to grow up in Pharaoh's household. And then when Moses fled Egypt, God himself called him and sent him back against his will to bring his people out of Egypt. When God delivered them, what was his first concern? To bring them to himself. To bring them to meet with him, the Holy One of Israel, the God of their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whom they had only heard of, but they did not really know. He brought them near to receive his word. God was gracious gracious to the children of Israel good people do you know that grace of God have you tasted the sweetness of such amazing grace for you see the grace that has appeared to us in Jesus dwarfs the grace that Israel knew God delivered them from slavery which could have made their lives miserable for a lifetime but in Jesus death on the cross and resurrection he delivers us from sin and death and damnation for eternity. God brought them near to hear his word through Moses the mediator, but Jesus brings us to the very, into the very uh, access to the throne room of God. He gives us his own spirit that we would have fellowship with God until one day we see him face to face. Grace which the children of Israel could never have imagined is held out to us in Jesus. This morning, morning, if you don't know him, I call you to Jesus to confess your sin and trust him and taste the sweetness of his grace. Well, having reiterated his grace to the Israelites, God then calls them to obedience. We heard about his grace in verse 4. In verse 5, he says, now if you will obey me and fully keep my covenant. He absolutely requires obedience. This is not a labor contract. God's not saying, okay, if you'll do this and this and this, I'll pay you so much. That's not what he says. This is just the nature of God's covenant of grace. This is how personal relationship works. Relationship always involves responsibility. Terrence Fratham again. The matter is presented in personalistic terms. God says, I did it. I bore you. I bought you. Brought you to myself giving heed to my voice, keeping my covenant, being my possession, that which is called for on Israel's part is couched in language speaking more of personal commitment to God himself than in keeping particular commandments. God does not say here he will establish a relationship with them if they will obey him. It sounds like that at first but think about it he has already established a relationship with them he already talks about his grace now he calls them to obedience because through obedience they will learn to be what he has called them to be just like the Apostle Paul tells us of God's grace in in our lives and then calls us to walk worthy of our calling is he saying if we walk worthy enough Somehow we will be called of God? No, he's saying you are called of God, so walk accordingly. As Gordon Larson writes, God's election is an act of grace and implies obligations rather than advantages. Or as we've said this morning, grace demands obedience so I challenge you this morning you, have tasted God, you who have tasted God's grace at work in your life you whom God has picked off the trash heaps of life you whom God has raised out of a living death you whom God has spared though you did everything in your power to defy him do you feel the weight of that grace this morning? I call you it a serious commitment to obedience. For this is true faith. This is true trust. To live in the newness of life that God has granted us. That was the Apostle Paul's testimony in 1 Corinthians 15. He admits his neediness. He says, I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Grace demands a response, a faithfulness, obedience. Well, finally, there's a third great truth that we need to learn from this passage. That is that God made us his peculiar people. God made us his peculiar people. Some of you may not appreciate me calling you peculiar. Then again, it fits better for some of us than for others. It's a biblical word, peculiar, not in this translation that we have in front of us, probably. It's the word that the authorized version uses when it explains God's calling, which is mentioned here. We read it in 1 Peter 2.9. This is the older translation. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people. Actually, peculiar is the old way of saying a distinctive people. God has called us to a distinctive role. He's made us a special, distinctive people. I just like the sound of the old word. Because it picks both God's call of distinction and the world's disdain for our distinctiveness. For the world considers us rather peculiar. But God made us his peculiar people. Now verse 5 and 6, the Lord gives Israel three descriptions of this distinctive or peculiar calling. That he calls his people his treasured possession. He calls them a kingdom of priests. He calls them a holy nation. And the wonderful thing about this is that in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter, writing to Christians like us, uses exactly the same three descriptions to describe us so what God says to Israel applies to us let's talk about each one of those three for a moment so we think about what it means to be a peculiar people first God calls his people his treasured possession the Lord says here although the whole world is mine you will be my treasured possession here the issue is one of our identity who are we To whom do we belong? Whose name do we wear? The truth is we enthusiastically sport all kinds of labels. We have hats and t-shirts identifying ourselves as mariners or huskies or cougars or who knows what. We fill our cars with bumper stickers identifying ourselves with this political candidate or that or this cause or that. Some of us wear our ethnic identity very publicly. Some of us fly American flags in front of our house saying who we are. But here we see that God trumps all those identities which we take to ourselves. And God says, no, first of all, you're mine. You are my treasured possession. John Durham explains the picture. The image presented is that of the unique of a unique and exclusive possession the crown jewel the masterpiece the one of a kind piece god calls us his peculiar personal treasure that would, be, would prove to be an important thing for israel to remember remember for the years to come For they would be pulled in many different directions, enticed to serve many different gods. But they were never to forget who it is that delivered them and bought them and claimed them as his own. And folks, we're no different. Christ bought us by his own death and resurrection. He has called us his treasured possession. Indeed, he calls us his precious bride. We have no right to take up any, any identity, to nurture any relationship that competes with him. As the Spirit says in First Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God's peculiar people His treasured possession. Second thing, God calls his people a kingdom of priests. This may be confusing to us because the Old Testament has lots to say about priests, but the whole priesthood of Israel had not been established yet. God said this to his people. So he's not addressing that special priestly role of people who were from the tribe of Levite or descendants or Levi or descendants of Aaron. Here God is addressing, he's describing the role of his people in the world at large. What is our role vis-a-vis the world? From the beginning, God intended that his people would have a priestly function in the world to represent him to the nations around them and to draw the nations around them to him. That was part of God's ancient covenant with Abraham. He said to Abraham, In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Unfortunately, Israel largely forgot about that thought that their special calling just made them better than everyone else. Peter Hines explains, as we so often see in the Old Testament, whereas God has created a people to be a means of reconciling the nations by their disobedient conduct, they rather became a byword, an object of ridicule by the nations. Rather than redeeming the nations, Israel, by rejecting the God who saved her, became a laughingstock. As a result, the nations will be less attracted to the true God than before. But God has called them to be a kingdom of priests in the world. And, folks, that's still his agenda for us. The promise to Abraham has been fulfilled in Abraham's greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus that the promise made to Abraham to bring blessing on the whole world will be fulfilled. Jesus is the one by whom blessing comes on the whole world. Jesus is the one who, it says in Luke 2, was born to be a light to the nations. So now God calls us who are in Christ a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, because our task is to show forth his glory and to draw people from every nation to know him. That's a priestly work. God made us his peculiar people, his royal priesthood. So I can't help but force the question, is the world drawn to Christ by the way we represent him? Or are they needlessly turned away? Indeed, do we even care whether the world knows Christ? Or are we content with the fact that we know him and Let them perish. God calls us to be a royal priesthood. Well, one more thing about his calling. God calls his people to be a holy nation. Just stand back and think about it for a moment. When God calls his people Israel, standing in front of Mount Sinai, a holy nation, it's a joke. They're not a holy nation. They're a ragtag bunch of slaves that have only been free for 50 days. All of the things that make a nation are not true of them. But God calls them to be what he is making them to be, not what they already are. And by the time of King David, this certainly they certainly have become a royal, holy nation. Folks, that's our calling, too. Well, God does not call us to crank up a political party and to compete in the nation as in in, 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 another nation in the world. He calls us to learn to be citizens of the kingdom of God that permeates all the nations of the world. Teres Fretham notes, The language of nation rather than congregation draws in all aspects of life as pertinent to the fulfillment of God's promise, not just the specifically religious. Christ is exalted to the throne of God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he calls us to live out his life as his holy nation, as citizens of the kingdom of God, that we might see his rule extended to the end of the earth. You see, God has made us a peculiar people. Have we come to grips with that? This is our identity. This is our mission. God has given us a distinctive calling We are his personal treasured possession. We're a royal priesthood called to minister to this world. We are his holy nation living under the rule of Christ. And make no mistake, the world will think we're peculiar. But this is our identity. This is our calling as it was their calling from the Lord himself. As we progress through the giving of God's law of Mount Sinai, we're going to hear many things that applied to Israel in a different way than they apply to us. But here at the beginning, as God addresses them, not in the context of the new Mosaic covenant that he's about to establish, but in the context of the existing covenant of grace that he had revealed in Abraham. There's little difference between them and us. God's plan is still the same. Pilgrimage, then paradise. Grace still demands obedience. And we, like them, are God's peculiar people. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And Though there are huge parts of it that we don't completely understand, we thank you that you've made yourself known to us and that we understand a lot. Indeed, Lord, we understand more than we've learned to live. And so I pray that as we go through these things, as we think about what you said here to your people, that we would learn not just to know what the words mean, but that we would live it, feel the weight of the truth that you've spoken to us this morning. Father, you've said that your word is like seed that gets planted in the ground, sometimes to grow and bear much fruit, and sometimes to get choked out, and snatched away, we pray that your word planted in us this morning would bear fruit, would find in our hearts fertile soil, and would change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.